0: Alright, Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2 is where we'll be tonight and we may or may not get through the chapter, we'll just kind of see. But one of the things that we don't want to miss in chapters 1 and 2 is remember that Moses is uh, writing this while the children of Israel, the people of Israel are in uh, uh uh, in exile, have uh, been on their way to, or not in exile, they've, they've lived in exile, and uh, they're en route to the land of promise. And one of Moses's purposes in writing Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, called the Pentateuch, penta meaning five, the Torah, uh, you may, same thing, the first five books of Scripture of the Old Testament is that Moses is wanting to make sure that God's people had a solid foundation, one, with who God is, the only true God. They Remember, they lived in Egypt and paganism, and they were going to be surrounded by neighbors uh, in the land of promise that were... uh, worshiped everything that moved and didn't move, and and so Moses is wanting to make sure that they understand who they are and who they are in light of who made them, who created them, what God made a purpose for their life, and also understand how they fit in, or rather part of that is how they fit into God's creation, made by God. The fact that we live and have lived in a culture that wants us to believe that we are just accidents, that we are nothing more than evolved uh, cosmic or slop or swamp or soup or whatever that has just uh, made its way out of, the, out of the mess over billions of years, that there's no creator, uh, there's no God, uh, we're just kind of here by randomness and we have no purpose or existence. Uh, you understand why it's so important to see uh, who we are, our our lives, our beings, who we are in light of Genesis 1 and chapter 2. So from the outset, Moses is wanting to make sure not just that he's establishing the God of creation, but also, chapter 2, our relationship to the God of creation, that we have a relationship with, with God. So let's look at chapter 2. And uh, I'll just read verses one through three. Uh, again, I'm. Uh, so I picked up my. Uh, well, let me use this one here. I picked up a different version there. <clears throat> read from the ESV, and that way it won't be any confusion. All right, Genesis chapter two. Let's read the first three uh, three verses here. You follow as I read. Thus the. that is unique to the other six days of God's creation. Uh, the seventh day, God rested. He didn't rest because he was tired, okay? He, wasn't, he didn't rest because he was just... Boy, by the time he got through with those animals and mankind, he was just beat. You know, now some of us know about, you know, I, I did a labor of love for my wife. She's needed a new desk. She works from home and... Um, and I always ask when she wants to get a piece of furniture, I always have one question. Not how much it costs. She's good about that. I have one question. Do I have to put it together? That is, that is usually a deal breaker. <laughs> and uh, kids were little. Yeah, you know, they charged $25 to put that bike together. Hey, you know, do it, you know. Um, well, I told her a labor of love, and this was a, one of these... You know, had an L and everything, and I put it together Monday, got her a new chair. That wasn't as hard. But I tell you, I, I you know, with all, you know, I felt doing that on Tuesday. And <laughs> um, so I needed rest. Well, God doesn't have to worry about that, He doesn't need rest. But in that rest, several things that are happening here is that He is uh, not, again, establishing that because He's tired and He wants people to ha- have a nap. Uh, but he wants man and see a pattern, a rhythm of work, but also the importance of a day of creation. One thing interesting talking about, and later that was identified in the law, and that seventh day later on, Moses and it was identified as, as what was that name called? A what? Sabbath. Sabbath all right, Sabbath mean, means seventh, okay? It doesn't mean Sunday. Sabbath means seven, okay? Like tithe means tenth. Nobody tithes 20%. They tithe ten and give ten, and give ten more as an offering, but, no, but a tithe means tenth. In other words, the numbers have a very specific purpose. So Sabbath means seventh, and it was later identified, uh, and uh, God embedded it into the uh, Ten Commandments, so the fourth commandment, but it's interesting, the concept of rest was something that pagan, pagan, non-Jewish... I say pagan, I'm just kind of putting everybody in that, that box, okay? Non-biblical religions did not have a concept of a day of rest. That was something unique in Judaism, the, uh, the Judaism as a religion, as a day of rest. And of course, that day of rest was, not, was embedded... In creation itself, uh, the uh, in between uh, the um, the time when the Old Testament ended was roughly about 400 years before we see events starting to occur in the New Testament around uh, uh, the year two or three A.D. Again, the calendar system is a little complicated, but 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 in that 400 years when we, uh, sometimes that'll refer to that as uh, the 400 years of silence. That means from the last Old Testament prophet till John the Baptist came on the scene, there was roughly 400 years, like when you, if you open your Bible in the end of Malachi and Matthew, it may just be a little page, but there's 400 years by the time uh, that ended and the birth or the beginning of the new. During that 400 years, there was a lot of history that went on and one of the groups—that's uh, where it was during that intertestamental period—they call it. That's where groups like the Pharisees and the Sadducees arose during that time period. Um, and one of the things that, uh, if you remember, uh, Pharisees—even Jesus noted uh, their zeal to get people to convert to their to the Jewish religion. Remember and again I'm paraphrasing cuz I didn't have this in my notes remember he said you know you'll travel overseas far and wide and you won't even help the one in your own back I mean I'm paraphrasing horribly but his point is is they were I mean they were noted as being very zealous evangelists for Judaism and one of the selling points if you could call it that is when they would go into gentile territories and preach uh, the law and, and the God of creation and the God of the Old Testament, one of the things that was a huge attraction by these, all these religions was this concept of a day of rest. Interesting. So we see that introduced here, but again, it wasn't, it wasn't because God was tired. It was part of a cycle. Interesting, something I, I read in this study is that this seven-day week seems to be something ingrained in the way that God made us. I read that during the uh, French Revolution where they were trying to overturn all the norms of culture and kind of create a a humanistic uh, government and education and really throw out any of the traditions during the French Revolution. They tried to create. They wanted to change the calendar. They wanted to just upend and Uh, you know, just create havoc in the culture and society, and they tried to introduce a 10-day work week. (laughs) Well, I think you know how that went over. It didn't quite work. But again, it's like those of you, I know uh, Chris uh, works at night, and some of you uh, had worked in the evening, and as much as you might just have to get used to it and deal with it, I don't think you ever get used to it. You know, I mean, but why? Because the way that we're wired, we're day people, you know, you know, night, sleep, whatever. And sometimes you don't always have that alternative. But God, it says in the scripture, it says he sanctified the seventh day. What's another word for sanctify? Blessed, Blessed it. What did you say? Set it aside. Holy, huh? Make holy. Make holy. Yeah, it means to separate it. In other words, he... When something is sanctified, like the articles, uh, utensils used in the temple in worship or the Levitical priests, they were saying sanctified, it means we're going to set this aside. We're going to set this aside for special purpose, for a special uh, blessing, if you will. And he sanctified the seventh day as a gift to man. Do you remember something Jesus said when he was questioned by the Pharisees, why he was allowing his disciples to pick grain on the Sabbath? Remember, they were out, they were hungry, and they were picking grain, and the Pharisees kind of flipped out because they were doing it on the Sabbath. And he reminded them that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath, the, day, the rest, uh, the blessing of it was made for the benefit of man. And, and in Jesus' day, the Sabbath had gotten so out of whack and became such a, a burden, really, and certainly move far away from the purposes of God. Now I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about that. It's probably most of, probably a little more than I wanted to say, in your outline. Because one of the things that people always have a question with is, well, what about today? Why don't we keep the seventh day Sabbath as far as Christians? And in that little highlighted yellow box on your outline, uh, uh, back when we were under uh, the COVID lockdown, I was doing the midweek Bible study in the book of Colossians. And uh, the, all those are online. I was watching a little bit today. I was like, good night. I don't remember half. I don't remember doing that. But I do remember I took an entire uh, 26 minutes, it was, uh, because in Colossians, the scripture in chapter 2, where he talks about not being caught up with keeping new moon festivals and various Sabbaths. And I took a whole 26 minutes and addressed the whole issue about, is the Sabbath something Christians today should uh, obey? Should we be worshiping on the seventh day? Why, is, why don't we? And so uh, that link, you can find it there. Go to our Grace Church of Lakeland uh, YouTube channel, uh, and uh, just if you want to put in Colossians and find the one that's for May 5th, 2020, uh, I go into enough detail, I think, that satisfies that issue there. So that's about all I want to address to that. Any, any questions on that, that that I can answer quickly that doesn't involve cremation or anything like that? Some of you don't know what I'm talking about, and that's good. <laughs> Any questions on the seventh day or anything like that? But if you really want to, uh, if you really are bothered by that, and want to dig down a little bit, uh, look at that video, and I think it adequately addresses uh, all those questions there. All right. So, so next on the seventh day, he blessed it. In verses four through seven, we see a little bit of repetition uh, that is similar to chapter one. So verse four. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now let me just point something out that I did a few weeks back when we were talking about the different ways that the word day, does anybody remember Hebrew word for day? Yom. Yom, Y-O-M. That's the transliteration. Uh, Now we may stress talking about how in Hebrew, the word day uh, has, it can, it, the context will determine the way it's interpreted. So if it has a number attached to it, like, and God called it the fifth day, or God called it the fourth, in, in Hebrews, or not Hebrews, in Genesis chapter one, that, that oftentimes when it has a number attached to the Hebrew word yom, that it, It means, or can be, or should be interpreted to mean a 24-hour cycle of a day. But when it doesn't, day can mean also period of time, epic. um, Again, the day of the Lord. Uh, You know, in that day, you will. You know, meaning a period of time. So notice how talking about creation here. Notice how day is used here. It says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And that's all it says. It doesn't say... It just condensed six days into what? One day, all right? So you see right there, one chapter over, you see the word day used not to speak about a 24-hour cycle, but to speak of kind of an overview of, of, of a period of time there okay just point that out to you verse 5 when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the, ge- the ground kind of like a uh, you could almost say like a greenhouse effect was the nature or was the condition of the earth prior to the flood. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man, singular, became a living creature. Let me mention something I was going to save till later, and I had trouble figuring out where I wanted to put it in, but I think I'm just going to bring it up here. Because oftentimes when people read Genesis 1, very detailed account, and they read Genesis 10. And they're like, "Why is there two different versions of creation here?" You're looking at me like you have no idea. I mean, you read it, but it doesn't. It doesn't say anything about you know the days that he created the, the vegetation and the animals. It doesn't. It just. It, it's almost like there's two different uh, versions here. Now some use that to say, "Aha! See." Genesis didn't have a singular author by Moses. There was different people who contributed to the book of Genesis. Because you got one author that uses Elohim. And then Genesis 2, we're going to see the name Yahweh used in here. And then you have a different account, or at least appears to be a different account. They say, ah, see, that tells you that Moses couldn't have written that. You can't rely on that. Tradition as that he was the author or he was responsible. Of course, we know ultimately the Holy Spirit is responsible to use his means and he uses people. And they point to that. But let me just give you a couple of thoughts here. This is not in your outline here, uh, but let me just give you a couple of, of thoughts here in case you're staying up late tonight worrying about this. All right? <clears throat> The first account in Genesis 1.1 through 2.4, and I have 2.4 there because the seventh day kind of book ends it, the first account of creation and the second account uh, until the end of chapter 2 do not contradict each other, but really they complement each other. Let me kind of say it in a really oversimplified way. Uh, chapter 1 gives us kind of the overview of God's creative work. But when it comes to uh, the earth, remember we talked about how Genesis chapter 1, part of it, the first three days of creation, God is forming. And then the latter three, he is filling, he's he's putting the furniture in the house, in the room. And so what chapter 1 does is it gives us the big picture, the overview of God's entire creative work from day one through day six, and of course day seven as the bookend of the days of creation. What chapter two does is chapter two supplies the details. Chapter two supplies, chapter one it says, and God created them male and female. He created man, male and female, singular, together. But he doesn't tell you anything about them. He doesn't tell you about their identity. He doesn't tell you about, you don't learn anything about the Garden of Eden. You don't learn about where, they're gonna, where God is going to place them. There's details that chapter 2 fills out. It's kind of like if you were reading a book, and sometimes the authors, sometimes they do this at the end, sometimes they do it at the beginning. I've read different ones. But they'll give you kind of an overview, big picture, like here's the landscape, here's, here's the map before we're going. And then as they begin the chapter... They kind of, you know, they kind of walk you through the pieces there. And it helps you like, no, okay, this is where we're going. This is the big picture of how these things fit in. So it's not, there's not two different days of creation, okay? But one, chapter one through the beginning of chapter two provides details that chapter two, two doesn't. But chapter two provides details that chapter one doesn't. And they're really seen as complementary, certainly not Contradictory to each other, okay? And so, again, just point that out. Chapter 2, the second part of creation in chapter 2, fills in details about God's creative work. Uh, We learn about Adam and Eve's names. We didn't learn that in chapter 1. We learn where they're placed, it's identified as the Garden of Eden. Uh, It identifies God's uh, explanation of how they were created, and I didn't tell us that in chapter 1. So don't let that throw you off or, or, or see that, but see that as complementary to the outline, if you will, of creation in chapter 1. Now look at verses 4 through 7, what we just read, and again we see the history of the heavens and the earth. And one thing that you see here in um, verse... Verse five, it says, uh, "When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land." I want you to notice that that name of God, Lord God. You see, Lord. If you're if you have your Bibles, Lord, you see it uh, capitalized or in, or in, yeah in capital letters. That is just a, a way to signal in the English that that is the name of Yahweh. Now, some traditions have called it Je- the name of Jehovah. Same thing, but, but Hebrew scholars would, would tell you that the J, pronouncing it Jehovah, is not proper. But it's Yahweh. That's the covenantal name of God. So when you see, and you're reading in your Bible, the Old, or old Testament and you come across Lord and its capital, L-O-R-D, unless you're a Hebrew scholar, and I'm not, that helps you when you see that, ding, 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 Yahweh. Now, some versions have recently began to, uh, like the uh, um, Legacy Standard Bible that uh, the Master Seminary, John MacArthur's uh, Seminary, uh, they have taken the... New American Standard and updated it, but one of the things one of the things that they did is they swapped out the word Lord and actually put the name Yahweh, the proper name of God, in its place. They weren't they were just putting it what it is, so it better communicates the name of God. So here uh, I should have brought it with me, but I, I'm pretty sure that it says Yahweh and God here in Genesis. Chapter two, you see, Lord God, Lord is Yahweh, and God, the name of God, G O D, that's used here in uh, Genesis uh, two five. Do you remember the name of God that was used in Genesis one that we talked about? But was the name of what was the name of God in the Hebrew that was used in Genesis one, Elohim? So what you see here is something very unique. You see Moses using. Putting those names together, Yahweh Elohim, okay, Lord God. Now again, you wouldn't get that out of your English, but that's um, that is what's being done there. And what is interesting, the reason I belabor that a little bit, is because putting those two together, just in Genesis chapter two and chapter three, uh, is used at least twenty times in those two chapters. So it's not just a one-off. It's used one other time in the Pentateuch in Exodus 9.30 and less than ten times in the remainder of the Old Testament. So in other words, there's something unique and intentional that Moses is wanting to communicate by using those Yahweh and Elohim together. The name Elohim Comes from the meaning, you know. I thought I felt warm there. Maybe we can get somebody to bump the air down that has a key if you don't have a key, or somebody would do that. I've got a key here, but I I feel like it's a little warm. Uh, Joy's back on the case. Thank you. All right. Um, Elohim comes from the word meaning to fear, it signifies the highest. Uh, the highest one, the highest being to be feared. Now, keep in mind, when the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it's not using fear for the believer in the sense of terror. The best way we could try to, and again, it's inadequate, um, is to think of fear in the sense of uh, respect and awe, meaning Um, I was not terrorized by my father, but I feared when my mother said, wait till your father gets home. And that had a little terror in it too, I'll be honest with you, all right? You know, he was a Marine, and he had hands size of a a Buick Electra, you know, and so that was the little guy, you know, you're worried about that, right? So again, fear in the Bible, I mean, there is a sense that, you the the God of uh, is to be uh, a terror upon judgment and sin okay don't don't let miss that, but for the believer when it talks about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, when he talks about Elohim and the highest being to be feared, meaning uh, it speaks of the sovereign sovereign ruler authority I mean I'm just trying to throw words up against the wall to get you to see that the fullness of God in all His power. That's the name in Genesis 1 that Moses intentionally used when he said, let Elohim say, bam, it happened. Elohim and His sovereign power and authority spoke and things came into existence. But then he's using it here and he puts Yahweh... And Yahweh is the covenant God of Israel, the personal name that God uses. You remember at the burning bush, Yahweh, when Moses is uh, having that encounter with Yahweh, the name of God, and the name of God, you say, well, I didn't see the word Yahweh there. Remember when Moses wants him to identify his name, and he says, I am who I am. And in Hebrew, the Word there is Yahweh, the name of God. Uh, It means that God is the self-existent one, self-determining one, the absolute being of all beings. It's not again. It's it's how do you put a name to to be descriptive for God? Is there a singular name that we can come up with that just in all its totality? Says everything that... No, that's why sometimes one of the studies that I'm sure, if you've been in Christian life for more than 30 years, 20 years, you've probably gone through some study of the names of God. You know, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Nisi, all those various names. Again, it's not trying to say there's all these multiple gods. It's just all the multifaceted names. What about all the various names and identities not necessarily proper names, but all the identities around the name of Jesus. I am the door. I am the light. I am the way. I am the truth. I mean, again, it's how do you put it all down to a singular name or word there? So, don't miss what, what the link is here. And here, here's the link. Here's what I want you to remember here. By putting these two names, see it there? And if I were you, I'd mark that in my Bible so I don't forget it. By linking these two names, Yahweh Elohim, Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, by linking these two names, remember what Moses is doing. He's writing to leave Israel a legacy. He's writing for them to understand who it is that's calling the shots. He's wanting them to understand who it is that's, birthed them, that made them, who's made covenant with them. Moses, by linking these two names, Moses is telling Israel that their God, Yahweh, the God of the covenant who led them out of Egypt, is the same creator God, Elohim, who made man and created all things and desires to bless them. Remember, these are people raised in Egypt, They're going to be surrounded by neighbors that are polytheistic, meaning many gods. An atheist, A, no God. Poly, meaning many. They believe in multiple gods, like Hindus and Mormons, and have multiple deities and gods. And he's saying there's one God, and the same God that ushered you out and walked you out of Egypt and demonstrated the power... That's the same God that spoke all things into existence. That's who calls the shots. That's who you're dealing with. And then it says in verse 7, mention the the mist going up, watering the land, keeping, uh, you know, those that study this in a scientific way look at this and study this and see how up until the flood that the earth pretty much had a uh, maybe an oversimplification had a tropical type of environment where there was a singular consistency because the water the vegetation and those things were being fed or being fed watered uh, from the ground again uh, a greenhouse maybe the overly simplistic. But then it says in verse seven, then here it is again, Yahweh Elohim formed the man of dust from the gro- form, the man of dust or from du- from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living. Creature, he made man from the dust of the ground, we're not made of anything special, just dirt, right? But it's something that happens of that dirt that makes it special and unique that God does. And it says that He breathed into His nostrils. And I think maybe in your outline I tried to put a few things there that the divine breath of God, in the Hebrew, this is the same word that's used in uh, Genesis 1, 26 and 27 talks about uh, animals became living. They, you know, they gave him life. But there's something distinct that God does here in the creation of mankind, humankind, that he didn't do in Genesis 1. Even though they're both living, being, living beings, he, the Bible says he breathed. He, uh, the Hebrew there is ruach. Uh, try to say ruach without letting any breath come out of your mouth. Ruach. Ruach. You can't do it. That's intentional of the Hebrew so that the word sounded like breath. Ruach. Transfer ruach. I mean, it doesn't. You can't do it, right? Ruach. You know, so that breath, breath, the Hebrew word, uh, and that is the same when we come to the New Testament. The New Testament Greek took that Hebrew word ruach and the same word, but obviously they had to have a Greek uh, um, uh, parallel word to match it. And that's the word pneuma. P P-N-E, N And in the way it's written, uh, P N E U M A. The P is silent, obviously, but that's uh, the word pneuma. Uh, When we study the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, we study pneumatology, all right? The doctrine of the Spirit. Uh, Where do we see this? Well, uh, look over in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We see the ruach, the pneuma, the breath of God in Acts chapter 2. Also, uh, it is also very closely related, ruach, pneuma, also related to Uh, closely related to wind uh, in Scripture. And we see that in Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost arrived, uh, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty, like, like. It sounded like a mighty rushing wind. Again, the picture of what's happening there is the place is being filled with the, Spirit of God. The Ruach. The Pneuma. The life-giving breath of God. Look over in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16. Paul is talking about the authority and inspiration of Scripture, of the Word of God. And verse 16 in the ESV says, all Scripture, now your version, how many of you see the word all Scripture is inspired? How many of you, your version says the word inspired? Does it say God breathed? Okay, that's I mean, inspired, you know, we're not gonna, you're not going to be flogged if it says that, all right? It's not a criminal act. It's just that the King James uses the word inspired, but it literally means God breathed. All Scripture is God breathed. Now, put the concepts together. Man, breath of God became a living being, okay? The Word of God. Words written by human authors. But Peter tells us these human authors in 2 Peter, I won't turn to it, I believe it's in 2 Peter, the last, I'm going to turn to it because I, I need to, I gots to know, I gots to know. Remember that in Dirty Harry? Some of you don't know, you don't know. Do you remember that? Are you feeling lucky? I got's to know. I got's to know. Did you fire six? All right. I digress. Sorry. Oh, Tim, you shouldn't have used the Bible because you don't have it marked. See, the trick is having things color coded, so you don't know where it is. But I know it's underlined. All right. But in Second Peter, I believe it's Second Peter. It could be First. I've been wrong three times in my life. But it, it speaks about Peter talking about the Word of God, how men were moved by the Spirit of God, were moved by God. It just means that men using their grammar, their language, their all their idiosyncrasies, what made it different, what made it special was the Holy Spirit guided and, and watched over what they wrote to authenticate accuracy and truthfulness and to be free from error. Why? Because these weren't just words. These were words that God breathed upon life. Uh, Some of you love novels. I like John Grisham. Hadn't read one in a long time. But listen, people's lives are not going to be turned upside down by reading a John Grisham novel. But they can read, the, I've heard testimonies, remember a testimony in a Gideon's meeting one time of an atheist that was in a hotel room on the verge of literally blowing his brains out and, and saw the Bible and threw it across the room. And as he was walking to the bathroom, he looked down and it was and the Holy Spirit, the, the way it was laid open and his eyes, he had a particular scripture, I don't remember which, and it was just in that moment God arrested his soul. And he was a Jew, Didn't have any leanings to Christianity. But God, in that moment, before he would put a gun and take his life, that God used this book of the Ruach of God that was breathed on us. So, back in Genesis, don't miss that that early connection there of God breathed, all right? So, uh, look over to, and God put Adam in the garden, in the Garden of Eden. Verse 8, chapter 1, 20 and 21. Yeah, so 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 was the, thank you, thank you. All right, look at verse 8, chapter 2, verse 8. Back in Genesis, back in Genesis chapter 2. So he breathed. Formed man from dust from the ground. And then it says he became a living creature. Verse 8, And the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, planted a garden in Eden. Those of you who like to garden, you're in good company. God's a gardener. Planted a garden. East of Eden. Wasn't that a movie uh, title? Well, I say East of Eden. The ESV says a garden in the Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had Form. Notice the language there, formed. He formed man. Psalm 139 speaks about how we were formed, uh, that God knit us, knitted us together. Um, I believe the NIV and the ESV say that we were knitted together while we were in our mother's womb. Speaks about the unique creative process, the unique creative design of God, that he made us unique and designed. He formed the man, he planted him, put him in a garden to uh, habitate, and and later he would add uh, and bring Eve into that uh, setting there. He put man whom he had formed. Uh, and so again, Genesis 1 gives us the broad stroke of creation, but chapter 2 gives us some details about this creation, who, what, where, why uh, they were put there. And notice in this garden, we see introduced in this garden, we see the two trees. We see the tree of life and the tree of, knowledge, of, of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 9, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Remember I said it seems fairly clear that the main diet uh, in, the, uh, in the garden there was uh, was not a uh, meat-based diet. Again, I'm not advocating anything. I'm just making the observation there. Um, but everything was needed. Notice that in God's design, when God did, does it, he gives you everything you need. If you think you need something and it's not there, you don't because... God put everything that they needed to prosper and fulfill God's purposes. And so He, out of the ground, uh, Yahweh Elohim made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life, the tree of life is one tree, was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So those two trees we see mentioned there that are going to play a prominent role uh, Prominent place in Scripture, especially in Chapter Two. This tree of life. Uh, interesting that uh, it is uh, a tree that is in met of, of. Again, we don't have any pictures of it. We don't know exactly, but it was it was given by God to provide some type of sustaining. Both of those trees. Let me kind of cut to the chase. God was in that early creation. The command that we'll see here, let me get ahead of it and then I'll back up. Um, Verse 15, let's skip down to that. The Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. We'll come back to that. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, "'You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die.'" And I kind of wondered, did Adam even know what dying was? Like, what is that? I don't even know what that is, but I don't want to do it, maybe. And notice he gave the command. Eve had not been created, at least in the sense of uh, brought forth by God, but he gave the command to who? To Adam. All right, this tree of life was where God put the two trees, God established, if you will, again, it may be oversimplified, but really it was the first law that God made. Don't do this and you will live. (laughs) Here's the deal. (laughs) Don't eat, don't take, don't do this. I've commanded it, not suggested it, but God commanded it. The tree of life was a picture, a purpose, creation by God that was uh, in whatever form it was, but symbolic at the very least, to provide sustenance and, and vitality that was connected, that to obey, to abstain from one is to obey the other, That in obeying that God was establishing a tree of life. There's life in choosing this, and there's not with this. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you could say that was the temptation tree. That was, in other words, the eating of the... Now, remember when God made everything, he made it uh, pleasant to the eye. Wasn't that one of the ways that Satan kind of worked on evil a little bit? Uh, eating the fruit of this tree by disobeying this tree of knowledge of good and evil would give Adam an experiential knowledge of good or evil. You see, only god, god only god has knowledge of good and evil, not experiential knowledge, because God can't sin. So by man, cutting to the you know, preview of coming attractions, man was choosing to put himself in a position of his own being God, but he wasn't made to do that. Only God... Could have that because God again doesn't need God cannot be have evil. He's holy. In fact, remember what James says: Don't attribute evil to God as though God can, can do evil. Don't blame God for the evil. Right? James says that. But Adam would Adam by disobeying would now put himself in an experiential godlike role illegitimately. But fundamentally, the bottom line is, he just flat out disobeyed God. We'll see that in chapter 3, this tree of life. Uh, At very least, it was a test of obedience. It was a test of this presence of the two trees enabled Adam, who was without sin, right, We all agreed there that trouble is ahead, but it hadn't happened yet. He was created in innocence. He was created uh, in a purity, if you will. He was created without sin. He had not disobeyed yet. That's chapter 3. So God put these two choices. So one sense we could say this is the only time... That humankind operated with a pure, free will. I know people say, well, you know, there's free will. Not really. That's not the picture the Bible uses of, of sinful man. It uses pictures like dead, bondage. I mean, you know, you can go on. But I know what we mean. Sometimes when we talk about, we're talking about responsibility. We're talking about, you know, uh, A what? choice, but again, if we are left to ourselves, we're always, going to choose, we're always going to choose wrong, because we're just bent that way. Our nature is corrupted. All right, we won't get to that yet, all right? But in the garden, God enabled Adam to freely obey or disobey the commandment of God. God did not create Adam to be a robot. Because only somebody, only a creature of free will, there had to be a choice or an opportunity to love God in obedience or rebel against God in disobedience. You with me? That's Wednesday night, don't go so. All right. God wants our love and obedience to Him to be obedience out of choice. But that's, that's the scenario... By putting these two trees there. Now, something interesting that I'll have you look at. If you ever want to do an interesting study, and I can't remember, I've read, I, I read so many different things. I, I didn't write it down, and I can't remember, and it's going to drive me crazy. But it was, but it, one of the commentaries, one of the studies, talking about and tracing all through the Bible and showing a pattern of individuals or situations that encountered God or the presence of God or some revelatory event, moment that involved a tree. Now, the one that comes to mind immediately that we'll see way down the road is in Genesis 18 with Abraham. Look over and just take a hang a right there and go to 18. We're not going to look at that. But it's interesting about the role of trees... In Scripture Genesis 18:1, "And the Lord LORD capitalized, that tells me in Hebrew, "The name of God is what, when I see that. Yahweh. Yahweh. And Yahweh appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre tree as he sat at the door of the tent in the heat of the day. Uh, Jesus told Nathaniel, "I saw you doing what?" Under the tree. Now, again, I can't give you all the, but I found that interesting, and I'll have to find that and dig that up, but it's, I thought that's an interesting thing there. All right, let's move on a little bit. We're going to come to chapter 3 later, but just in the few minutes we have, we see in verses 10 through 14, I'm not, there's rivers, uh, two of those rivers, the Pishon, and uh, what's the other one there in verse 10 through 14? There's another. Was it the uh, Gihon? Uh, nobody has a clue of where that is. But we do know two other rivers that are mentioned there, and they are referred to as the Tigris and the Euphrates. The Tigris and Euphrates, the base, I believe, starts around the Persian Gulf, runs all the, the two kind of split up, but they run through Iraq, Syria, and I believe, and I don't one of them, I, I didn't write it down, goes up into Turkey. So the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, we still know where that location is. Now, again, people want to speculate and say they know exactly where the Garden of Eden is. Well, we don't. But it's probably really safe to assume it had to be somewhere in that Middle Eastern section of the world, right? Listen, to this day, we're in 2023, and what is the focal point of the entire world is around what? That little sliver of real estate and that city of Jerusalem. Still today. All right. And so God, these two rivers, won't get off into that there. But He told Adam in verses 15 through 17 the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to do what? Work. I thought that's a curse of the devil. I'm trying to live where I can do nothing. No. Work is pre-fall. But see, the difference is the work that Adam would do would be as a vice-regent under the service of a loving boss. The loving king. A benevolent king. But now... But as we'll see in chapter 3, he will work and it will be the sweat of his brow. It will be labor. The normal blessing of childbearing, that's going to be, a, 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 again, the, the sinful burden that would be put upon man in trying to determine their own livelihood and their own um, place of life and living. They would be, and humanity was thrust into uh, a much different scene and scenario than God provided in the garden, but he told him to tend it, to work it, to keep it. Work is something good. Someone writer said this. I thought this is interesting. Just got a few minutes. They said this: the ideal state of sinless man is not one of sloth without responsibility. Work and duty belong to the perfect environment, the perfect state. The perfect state, the perfect environment involved work and responsibility. That was pre-fall, something God instituted, God ordained. I have a little there window there you can read that, but uh, here in verses 16 and 17, a, the first what, uh, as we catalog the various covenants, sometimes this is referred to As a covenant of works. That's a little confusing. But uh, I saw one talk about a covenant of labor. But we see a covenant here. The command that's introduced in verse 16 and 17. Is a command of God who makes. that. This is a conditional covenant. Later there would be an unconditional covenant. That he'd make with Abraham. But here it's a conditional of God's command. Of what he commanded man to do. And by virtue of that. Not to do. And so obedience was the currency uh, in living in this particular covenant uh, with God. All right, I'm gonna, we're going to stop there. Uh, if I don't have to make a new outline, we want to pick it up a little bit uh, next week under the creation of the woman.